Welcome to Restoring Memory, a COVID calls exploration of the first two COVID years. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters. And since March 16th, 2020, I've been the host of COVID Calls, a daily discussion of the pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. This is part four, a pandemic of racism. I'd like to start by reading what I think is one of the most important documents of the COVID era. This is the testimony of Philonis Floyd in the oversight hearing on policing practices and law enforcement accountability in the United States House of Representatives, Wednesday, June 10th, 2020. These are the words of Philonis Floyd. Chairman Gerald Nadler and members of the committee, thank you for the invitation to be here today to talk about my big brother, George. The world knows him as George, but I called him Perry. Yesterday, we laid him to rest. It was the hardest thing I've ever had to do. I'm the big brother now. So it was my job to comfort our brothers and sisters, Perry's kids and everyone who loved him, and that's a lot of people. I have to be the strong one now because it's what George would have done. Me being the big brother now is why I'm here today, to do what Perry always did for us, to take care of the family and others. I couldn't take care of George the day he was killed, but maybe by speaking with you today, I can help make sure that his death isn't in vain. To make sure that he's more than another face on a t-shirt, more than another name on a list that won't stop growing. George always made sacrifices for his family, and he made sacrifices for complete strangers. He gave the little that he had to help others. He was our gentle giant. I was reminded of that when I watched the video of his murder. He was mild-mannered. He didn't fight back. He listened to the officers. He called them sir. The man who took his life, who suffocated him for eight minutes and 46 seconds, he still called them sir as he begged for his life. I can't tell you the kind of pain you feel when you watch something like that. When you watch your big brother, who you've looked up to your whole life, die. Die begging for your mom. I'm tired. I'm tired of the pain I'm feeling now, and I'm tired of the pain I feel every time another black person is killed for no reason. I'm here today to ask you to make it stop. Stop the pain. Stop us from being tired. George's calls for help were ignored. Please listen to the call I'm making to you now, to the calls of our family, and to the calls ringing out in the streets across the world. People of all backgrounds, genders, and race have come together to demand change. Honor them. Honor George and make the necessary changes that make law enforcement the solution and not the problem. Hold them accountable when they do something wrong. Teach them what it means to treat people with empathy and respect. Teach them what necessary force is. Teach them that deadly force should be used rarely and only when life is at risk. George wasn't hurting anyone that day. He didn't deserve to die over $20. I'm asking you, is that what a black man's life is worth? $20? This is 2020. Enough is enough. The people marching in the streets are telling you enough is enough. Be the leaders that this country, this world needs. Do the right thing. People elected you to speak for them to make positive change. George's name means something. You have the opportunity here to make your names mean something too. Death ends up changing the world for the better, and I think it will. I think it has. Then he died as he lived. It is on you to make sure his death isn't in vain. I didn't get the chance to say goodbye to Perry while he was here. I was robbed of that, but I know he's looking down on us now. Perry, look at what you did, big brother. You're changing the world. Thank you for everything, for taking care of us when you were on earth and for taking care of all of us now. I hope you found mama and can rest in peace and power. The testimony of Philonis Floyd to that oversight hearing on policing practices and law enforcement accountability from Wednesday, June 10th, 2020. And I strongly encourage everyone to find that wherever you get videos and watch it. Do a much better job than I did reading it. It's his words, but I wanted to have it in the record. And I'd like to talk about racial justice today, disaster recovery and the pandemic with some experts that it's really been my honor to learn from in these last two years, I think of them as mentors and friends. Uh, let me introduce them. Joy Banner 
is the Director of Media and Marketing at Whitney Plantation. She's a native and resident of Wallace, Louisiana, and a descendant of Whitney Plantation. Inspired both by Whitney's Whitney Plantation's mission and her desire to help her largely descendant community, Joy returned home to advocate for economic and environmental rights. Felicia Henry is a licensed social worker and a PhD student in the Department of Sociology and Criminal Justice at the University of Delaware, where she's also a Bill Anderson Fund Fellow. And Monica Sanders is the Managing Director of the Georgetown University Environmental Justice Program. She's the founder of the Undivide Project, an organization dedicated to addressing the legal and policy changes needed to address the intersections between digital and climate equity. She also teaches law, policy, and practice in disasters and complex emergencies at the Georgetown Law Center. Joy Banner, Felicia Henry, Monica Sanders, it's really nice to see the three of you again. Thank you. It was nice to see you too. <laughs> so I'd like to start. I really appreciate you coming on this, this episode. I was trying to it's impossible to make sense of these issues in 45 minutes, and that's not the point, but it's to return to these issues again that I've talked about with the three of you. Now that we have a little bit of vantage point of time from where we were in 2020, and I want to take us back to that moment, and maybe that testimony from Philonis Floyd sets a tone as we go back to that, to that time. Felicia, I want to start with you. A basic, basic question, how do you think now about that springtime and summer of 2020? Mm, that's a great question. So first, I'm going to just say thank you for having me back, having us back one more time or multiple times. Um, it has been truly an honor just to be here and um, just to be able to be a part of the history that this is. And so just thank you so much for that. just want to um, echo that and, and make that clear. Um, as far as answering the question, you know, I think that when we were in the summer of 2020, a lot of people had hope. A lot of people had um, kind of that fire under them and was ready to go, ready to fight for racial justice, ready to do all the things. And we saw institutions responding. Everyone had all of a sudden popping up diversity and inclusion, uh, you know, working groups or racial justice fellows or Everyone had the black background with the white text saying that black lives matter, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I think to some, right, so I don't want to dismiss the, the progress and the strides that have been made. I think to some, a lot of people thought that that would like totally win the fight against um, racism and really achieve racial justice. And what we've seen in the last two years is that racial justice, to achieve racial justice, we really need to go back to the founding of this country. And we need to really recognize that racism is not going anywhere because this country was built on it. And so I think that while that might seem uh, sad or um, you know pessimistic, I think in many ways it can be optimistic when we recognize that in order for us to really achieve what we want to achieve, we have to go back, we have to call it by its name, and we have to be honest about what it is. A diversity, inclusion, and equity working group will not get us there. Uh, a racial justice fellow for nine months is not going to get us there, especially when they don't have, they're in, you know, an institution, academic or otherwise, that the board is still white, the board is still not supportive, right? Climates where they will not actually succeed or they will hit a lot of walls because it's not designed for them to push through. And so I just, I just think that, you know, while there has been progress and while we have seen kind of this return and this fire to achieve these things. We've also seen lots of pushback. We've seen pushback in elections. We've seen pushback in what we understand to be recovery. We see pushback in the criminal justice system, right? In so many ways, we saw populations shrink and now they are even above pandemic level, pre-pandemic levels. So you're starting to see a lot of the response. And I think it's it's our responsibility not to just look back at 2020 and say that was a good year, but to really say what was happening when we, I even listened to that testimony just now, like what was he calling for that we still have not responded to two years later? Thank you for that, Felicia Joy. Let me bring you in if you wanna comment on anything Felicia said there or add anything, please. No, yeah, I, I think, you know, just like 
like Felicia said, we went through this moment where it it didn't feel like, you know, the same the same America because we were actually saying the word black. We were actually saying race, you know, and, and now I, I think that we we talk about we say the words, you know, and we say it more often. Um, but, you know, there was that that pushback. And, you know, I um, so for so for me, one of the books that, you know, I, I read um, was Stamped from the Beginning. And the reason why I got led to that book is because I listened to um, I listened to a podcast with Ibram X. Kendi and the host was focusing on whiteness. And it was like you can't and, and, and without, you know, I know that may sound like, OK, you, maybe he's centering whiteness um, and, and that's not what you necessarily want. Um, but no, it was, why are we looking toward, why are we trying to solve our problems with race by examining black people? When is the, is the idea of race is the idea of whiteness, you know, um, that is the real problem. And so, um, that has, that has kind of led me, you know, to a journey where I'm investigating, I'm even stretching my, um, my reading, you know, and, and I've, I've done like, I've, I've, even I'm able to not able, but I'm, I'm concentrating more on like the institution of, of slavery, for example, and how when people come and visit Whitney, which is a museum of slavery, and they obviously think it's about, oh, these people were so racist. And it's like, nah, you know, I, I, I know where like there is this is a very racialized system, but they're not doing this because there is a hatred of black people. You know, this is about economics. This is about, you know, um, domination. This is about exploitation. Of course, it's racialized. I don't want to diminish, you know, and diminish that fact. But I think that by by really what it what it did for me was expose how much we don't know about that part of our history, like you were saying, and how much of it, even when we 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 perceive that we're in the we're on the right side of it, how much of it is still like linked to the mythology of the plantation world, right? And and even you're fighting against a myth. And so I think when you can rise and rise and really, you know, lift above that and focus on really what were what were the things that created this country, what were the foundations, um, and you were working with a system that didn't mind who it was going to eat up, you know, and, and there were things that lined up to where, not things, it was the exploitation of Africans that, you know, made it so it was this group, but um, it does not mean that we as Americans, uh, no matter, you know, your, your group, that you are not facing those same issues. Um, so I think that for, for many people, I would say that, you know, whether we want to be or not, Black people are the canary in the coal mines. When we say something is wrong, it would be best for you to listen. Ultimately, you know, we are going to be the ones that that save, <laughs> that save so many others. Um, and, and, it's, and it's known that, you know, it's, it's known that that's the case. And that's why our voices are, are, are so erased and so diminished, um, because we really do hold power. Um, and, and there is a fear of, of what we can accomplish if we all got together and just worked for justice and worked for rights and just left the idea of race, you know, alone. So, um, yeah, that's, um, that's kind of where, you know, like that, that I, what I remember coming out of, of, of 2020 the most for me. Monica, is it possible for you to, to climb back into your mindset of the summer of 2020? I mean, in COVID time, that's about two decades ago, but, um, what was on, what was on your mind at that time? And we talked around then too on COVID calls. We did. And I was frequently around Felicia at that time. And I remember the fatigue and that has come and gone and come again. Um, I felt it this morning when I read an article about Black Americans not feeling hopeful about police reform to make a clear link between summer of 2020 the testimony you just read and the question that you've asked. And I wanted to be hopeful in summer of 2020, but it was in the midst of, you know, being personally impacted by some of this extractive attempts at diversity making in institutions, but also, you know, like Joy, I'm from Louisiana and I come from an old and painful family history in Louisiana. Mm -hmm. like my first ancestress was brought over 
from Senegal through Cuba to be the concubine of the French provincial governor of the territory. And so that summer was a cycle and a cycle of violence that many of us who have the privilege of knowing our family history and many of us do not have that privilege still, it's just yet another iteration. And so I was feeling all of that that summer and hoping that somehow George Floyd would be different. But in the back of my mind, I knew this would not be the case. And we're still in fatigue. And I cannot say it better than what Nakuya Walker said when she resigned from being the first Black female mayor of Charlottesville, Virginia. She says, this is not about the Confederate mythologist not moving aside. It's about the unwillingness of white liberals to unpack their own complicitness and be uncomfortable. And there's nothing more I can do here. And she spoke in her words and her actions, the voices of so many of us that have felt that way. Except she had the courage to say, I'm not even going to wrestle with it anymore. I have better ways to spend my God-given life. I'm tired. I'm going to lay it down. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's happened to some of that energy and that groundswell from 2020 is people looked up and realized, I need to pivot and do something else. I'm tired of this and I need to put it down. And I think that's still an internal dialogue that's happening within different communities and amongst individuals as we reconcile everything that has happened over the course of this pandemic that has laid so many things to bear. That's just where I was then and where I'm at now. Yeah, thank you all for sharing that and and for sharing that family history, Monica. Um, you brought an issue up right away that I want to I want to take a minute with, and you referred to it as the uh, the extractive process of the DEI diversity, equity, and inclusion work. And Felicia, you mentioned it too, and I'm sure Joy, you've seen it where you are as well. That um, as you said, Felicia. Um, Everyone is sporting BLM logo in the summer of 2020, black and white around the world. Um, Every university, the university I was teaching at at that time, immediately founded a DEI initiative. Massive. Almost 100 people on a committee. And um, it wasn't a hiring committee, I would like to point out. Not, Not yet. Um, but that was just one little, that was one little corner of it and use, use this term extractive. And, and I want you to say a little bit more about that if you would, cause, cause we do have some time has gone by. I guess those committees still exist. I don't know if they've put out their reports. I don't know if there've been academic assessments of the DEI work of the summer of 2020, but, um, I'd like to know what you think about it. Me in particular? I was asking Monica first, and then I want to ask Felicia. Uh, you're you're a graduate student, Felicia. I, I wouldn't necessarily want you to have to speak about the environment where you're in. So we can speak generally, um, but I, you know, I think Monica, you raised some hard issues there, uh, which is that when institutions want to show they care about something, particularly academic ones, they make a committee. Mm-hmm. They make a committee or they do a create a special role. And what happens is that role is not one that challenges the institution or its values. It is a tack on to curriculum redesign at its best or simply to create dialogue at its worst. The people who come into these roles are often BIPOC people. So what you're doing is you're adding to the workload of the already overworked person of color, both in terms of their academic responsibilities, but also the emotional and cultural work of existing in this country at this time, and then having to lead the department in whatever tasks you've assigned them to. And it's never about the institution or the majority people in the institution offering up their experiences for examination to Felicia's point earlier. It is about asking that person to rip open even further wounds that have been laid bare 
and expose those experiences for the examination of the institution and the departments under the guise of learning to do better. I don't know how many times I heard that phrase. We want to do better over the past two years, but it's just simply not true. Dr. Kendi has written the books, right? Kinjirai Kumanyika has made the podcast, Examining Whiteness. So we, we know what needs to be done. Mm-hmm. It's just the wherewithal to do it is so much more difficult. It'll take years and thinking about it all time, all the time, every day, all day, and really putting yourself in the role that we understand. And that just doesn't happen when these committees form. And it's the same template, whether we're talking about universities or corporate environments or even neighborhoods. My HOA wanted to have a diversity committee and I was not voting for that um, because they were concerned about where our neighborhood was going in the midst of all of this. It's, you know, it never ends up the way that it should, is how I'll say. Well, Felicia, is, is there something, was it a, there was a moment that was missed there then in the summer of 2020? when when we should have been asking for something else? I mean, you all identified structures, right? Criminal justice system, hiring system of a, of a university, right? Um, the, the way the historical profession works or the historical apparatus of the United States works. I mean, those are, are big structures, but... I felt like there was such a, it's a, it's a bind. I don't know how to get out of it. A person is murdered. Multiple people are murdered. Three really devastating murders, at least, which each got major national news coverage in the spring of 2020. People go to the streets in ways that we hadn't seen in the United States in a long time. And it's not that you wouldn't want people to do that, but I don't, I guess I'm searching still to see the connection between those actions and the other kind of actions that the three of you have been talking about are the kinds of things that we need. I don't, I don't know how we, I don't know if they're just disconnected or if they, if the it was, if it was the wrong approach, could they have been connected in some more meaningful way? I think we have to sort this out yeah. to know how to do better next time. And I hate to use that phrase next time, but I use it. Yeah. So I, I think the reality is um, a lot of times, and I think it's just the way that, um, we're socialized to believe that it has to be an either or. I think what we saw in the streets in the summer of 2020, both in the United States and internationally was important. And it was one strategy of many. And so I think that many times we look at the toolkit or the toolbox of of change of social movements or social change. And we say, it has to be this, or it has to be this, or it can't be this, or this is not as meaningful. Um, But when you think about some of the people who saw the outpouring of thousands and thousands and thousands of people in the streets, they were moved to do something. They were moved to say, wait a minute, we're in the midst of a global pandemic where people are literally dying by the minute, thousands and thousands of people. I would go in the midst of this crowd and I could potentially contract COVID and die from COVID. But this call for racial justice is so important to me that I'm still going to go out in the streets in the midst of thousands of people. And I think that is one of many things that needed to happen. And that still needs to happen when we think about this overall call for racial justice. I don't think that changing structures and then being in the streets are two different things, or that they're even um, opposed. I think that we can reconcile them by thinking of all of these actions on a spectrum. These are out, outward facing kind of like outward strategies that also need to essentially move people to do something. And then when we do something, we look at the structures and say, hey, what's going on here? And so when we look at structures, it doesn't mean coming up with a committee or saying diversity, equity, inclusion. It means looking at hiring practices? How many people of color do you have on your staff? And not just in administrative roles, not just in lecturers and the academic institution, right? How many people of color are tenured? How many people of color are in administrative positions in the sense of being chairs or associate chairs or being deans? People that can make decisions, right? Um, when you think about uh, folks who are in same thing with corporate America or whatever, or even if you look at the criminal justice system, right, we're, we're talking about 
literally taking a moment and saying, okay, who is actually behind bars? So if we keep seeing all of these black and brown faces, it can't just be, oh, black and brown people just commit more crimes so we have to lock them up. Like it's literally taking a second to say, hey, this is a structural issue. There is no way that everywhere across the United States, black and brown people are the people that are committing the most crime. Like they're literally just starting to break some of that down. And so I, I think that the way that we reconcile, the way that we wrestle with these things is to understand that people will advocate and will um, move in different ways, whatever ways make sense to them, whatever ways they're willing to sacrifice, right? Because what Monica was even talking about earlier, the emotional labor and the work that it takes to do some of these things also sometimes comes at a cost and a sacrifice, right? There's a risk associated with it. So there's some people that are willing to take the risks in their positions of power and some people that might not be, some people might just go to the streets, whatever have you. But I think that we should start to think about these things as a longer a spectrum, yeah. as what are the points that gets us to the, the the change? What are the things that need to happen along the way? What is the um, you know the 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 catalyst that needs to take us to that next level, as opposed to what is the one thing that we do to change? Because there's no way. Like we are, we have been making this for centuries, and so to undo it, we're going to have to kind of from every tool tool in the toolkit essentially You know, uh, Joy, you were talking about um, people need to look at the black experience in America because that's the canary in the coal mine for everybody else. And and I thought, you know, and when people talked about justice for George Floyd, and this is kind of tying in what you were saying, Felicia, I mean, I think a lot of people meant um, the people who murdered George Floyd need to be brought to justice. Right. But there's second level of justice about that. And now let's talk about the system. And I think I think a lot of people were excellent. And you've talked about many of them. And I've had Rashawn Ray on it, uh, COVID calls. Excellent at speaking very clearly about justice in this in this instance and justice more broadly. And you're in a community that is sort of at the front lines of environmental justice work. And I, I mean, that's a that's an example to me of how the communities of color at the front lines calling for justice. When you succeed in for health equity or for environmental justice, that's good for everybody in Louisiana. That's right. good for everybody in America. So, it's, I, so again, I just I bring this to you as my own sort of meager observation that I just feel like we're almost we're like almost right there in terms of communicating it, but that maybe it's my own naivete throughout this time to continually be frustrated that those structures of division or so, are so resilient. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think you're, you're, you, you hit the nail on the head. And um, in addition to, you know, so I, I think we all, when we finished 2020, you know, especially for black Americans, we were, we were tired and, you know, we were waiting for 2021. We we're waiting for the vaccine. Remember that we were just waiting for that vaccine to come. And, you know, I remember going into 2021 and my parents um, were in their 70s. They were able to get their vaccines in February. So I was able to breathe a sigh, a sigh of relief that my parents had gotten vaccinated. I, I hadn't been in my parents' house for the whole year. And so, like, I just remember sitting in, you know, in their in their den that that, you know, around that time. Um, and very shortly thereafter, I mean, uh, maybe a day or so um you, Scott, you're talking about, um, you know, the environmental, you know, uh, community, environmental um, context that we're in, which is known as, you know, cancer rally and petrochemical and heavy industry. Well, I mean, so we were, we, we were, you know, that threat was, you know, more, um, you know, more daunting to us because our parish had the highest per capita COVID death rates in the country, my little parish. 
Um, but then, so that was scary for us, but then we immediately found out that we had a huge grain terminal facility, um, that was planning to relocate right on top of my historic community, you know, so the community that my great grandfather settled and formed and, you know, like my whole family is my neighborhood. We found out like within a, within a day through public notice, by the way, so not through any type of communication and, or, you know, collaboration, even if it was pretend with the community. And that happened March 1st of 2021. And I have been fighting and I, I say, I, I'm, I'm sorry to say, I, we as a community has been, have been fighting since then, since over a year. Um, and the circle, circle back to what you were saying, Scott, what, where we are in the fight, um, we've had to sue our parish over zoning laws. Um, our, the reason why this huge, massive terminal can locate next to us. And when I say huge, I mean, it's, it's structures as tall as 300 feet. That's 200 feet away from houses. It is on grounds that we believe to have the remains of, of, of um, unmarked burial grounds of enslaved people. It's next to Whitney Plantation, a slavery museum. It has Civil War artifacts on it, probably from Black Union soldiers. Um, everything about this is just, it's just corruption. Um, but the reason why that terminal was able to come in, locate on top of us is because the parish president 30 years ago um, took a bribe was convicted, you know, but he did manage to to change the residential zoning to industrial zoning, uh, went to prison for five years, but the zoning never changed back to residential. Um, so I, you know, along with the rest of the community, we have two, two teams of lawyers, one at Tulane Environmental Law Clinic to help us fight permitting. And the other is a lawsuit against the parish challenging the zoning and trying to, up, you know, trying to overturn that zoning. And so to get back, you know, to your question, there is just corruption. You know, we talk about justice and we talk about how can we, you know, be, you know, on, on equal ground. There is a system that is a product of a plantation system, you know, which is, you know, we talk mm. about plantations in terms of race. But going back to the model of extraction, you know, you had indigenous people who were enslaved. You had enslaved Africans clearing thousands upon thousands of acres you know, of, of, of wooded, you know, forest, you know, for these, um, you know, these plantations to come and just chew up, tear up families, you know, tear up bodies, all for the sake of profit, all for the sake of economic development, right? And it's not like, you know, going back to the point that, you know, I had, I said before, you know, like we always talk about in terms of the plantation owners, but not every white person was owned those massive plantations. So what was happening to them, right? And and so you can see this exploitation across the board of everybody. In fact, I mean, in our mythology about you know the Confederate South, they don't tell us about a lot of the white people who did not want to fight, you know, for the Confederacy, who were actually you know against secession and who where there was momentum growing, pushing back against the slavery system, you know. So I mean, it all goes down to you know, the ways in which we rely on the system and people in power. And in my case, you know, we've had like, we literally suing the parish. Um, we're, we're finding out um, the most unbelievable acts of injustice that are happening. And we might get it worse than first, but, you know, there's no such thing as black air and white air, even though it's concentrated around, you know, black communities, you know, they cannot force just black people to breathe the air and get the dust. And so um, I think that, there just needs to be so much more education and, you know, these tricks that, that people are using, like this fake backlash against critical race theory when people don't even know a critical race theory, like your kindergartner is not learning critical race theory. You know, like it's, it's so it's just these um, how to get past our psychological attachment and our identification, the needs, our self-esteem, our ego needs with this idea of whiteness or, you know, the proximity of whiteness, how do we get over it? You know, and maybe it's just like, it's like, you know, you were saying, Felicia, it's a process. And we just, you know, I, as far as we need to go, you know, should we, should we appreciate how hard it is to, to make any movement that, that, you know, can we take hope in the little movement that we make? Um, and so I, I just, I, I, I don't know. I mean, that's the, like, when do we learn? When do we, when do we get it? 
um, that we're destroying ourselves over this imaginary construct, you know, of race. Let me do a quick reminder that you're listening to COVID Calls, and this is the welcome, I'm welcoming you back to the Restoring Memory Project, the COVID Calls exploration of the first two COVID years. And I'm talking to Monica Sanders, Felicia Henry, and Joy Banner. I'd like to talk about the future. Actually, all three of you are quite brilliant at talking about past, future, and present in ways that are really productive. And I think you're all very good at keeping us focused on possible futures. But you have projects underway, all of you, um, that uh, are really impressive and interesting. And I want to give a chance just to talk about that uh, for a moment here. Monica, tell us about the Undivide project. BIPOC communities are on the front lines of digital divestment, just as they are on every other kind of divestment. And when we look at these maps that say communities that are not connected to the Internet, there's just a black spot and it tells you nothing else about who those people actually are. They're erased right along with their opportunity to participate in this increasingly digital society, right? Like we have some people that are on web 3.0 doing NFTs, founding decentralized autonomous organizations, doing great activism work. And then you have people who haven't connected at all. And so this project is about, learning who those communities really are, connecting them in a way that service is actually delivered to them. So it's not, here you got the internet now, good luck, catch up with us. It's about addressing the vestiges of not knowing how to form businesses online, not knowing how to attend school online, not knowing how to activate online alongside making sure that they're connected to the internet. So it's about undoing these divisions that these communities suffer from. So what's this this year going to be like in terms of that work? So we're running two pilots. We are challenging the investment in a divested part of Washington, D.C. City had a plan. City received federal money. City put high quality Wi-Fi in the library. But the library in these neighborhoods is if you don't have a car, many people in the neighborhood do not have a car is a 40-minute ride from school on the bus. It gets dark on the East Coast at 5 or 6 in the evening. You get out of school at 4 o'clock. So if you got to go to the library to do your homework or do some research online, you got to take a 40-minute bus ride in the dark and not the best neighborhood to access that internet and then figure out some kind of way to get home. So that's not really connecting communities. So we need to challenge that narrative right? and find some different ways to actually deliver service to folks. And then we're going to the end of where the broadband cable reaches all the way down in Southeast Louisiana to work with some of the indigenous communities that have been hit by three successive hurricanes. And probably shortly after, you know, alongside what's going on in Ascension in St. John the Baptist Parish, some of the highest COVID death rates and the loss of language and cultural heritage, as well as homeland that comes with that. If you don't have the internet, you can't tell your story. So nobody knows what's happening to you. So there are people who need to be connected in stories that need to be told and trainings about how to advocate and petition your government so that they can get to the place where they can file suits and make complaints. So we are, that's what this year is going to be about. We're going to make as much trouble as we possibly can, but also connect as many people as we possibly can. <laughs> Joy, what about you? I mean, what's is, is Whitney back to something that you might consider? Uh, I don't like the word normal in this pandemic, but are people able to come as they were before the pandemic and before the before the hurricane? So we are not um, we are not at our pre pandemic numbers yet, um, but we are we we are seeing an increase in visitation because not in addition to the pandemic, right when I, we, our numbers were um, were getting up there and looking nice, we're feeling, and we still, um, you know, feel great about about Whitney's success and and people love. I mean, people are so thirsty for for that education about slavery. So that's that's the positive, you know, the positive um, of point about it. But then we got hit by a hurricane. And so we had to close for, you know, uh, for a few months. And, and so we, we had to get back on track and we, we opened up after December 
And then, um, and the numbers have been, again, we have our slow days. We're still certainly not out of the woods, but I, I feel good about Whitney. I mean, we do need, we do need support. I mean, donations help us get through these, these times. Um, but I feel good because I think that we ha again, had to have such an, a wonderful community of people um, that support us. Um, but for, for me, in addition to Whitney, um, my, me and my twin sister started our own nonprofit called the Descendants Project because Whitney was not able to do all the work on its own. And, you know, we're in a plantation tourism industry that elevated the experience of the enslavers and, you know, did not, you know, dedicate the adequate, you know, the, the, you know, the fact that these plantations should be centered on the enslaved people who built these spaces and also for the descendant community who still live um, around these plantations, but don't get to be part of the economics um, of plantation tourism. And so their voices are not heard. Um, and, you know, public money goes to tourist commissions that, you know, in particular ours, that ours that wants to keep that, um, that, you know, slave owning um, mythology, you know, that, that whole, yeah, like the whole grandeur of slave owning um, alive. So we created the Descendants Project to fight that narrative. Um, it was in more so economic development, economic opportunities for descendants, but we have quickly become more centered in environmental justice. Um, and we just, again, alongside fighting the grain terminal, we've just been pushing, pushing, pushing really hard and have just been supported by, you know, wonderful, you know, environmental justice communities. Um, and so definitely like Monica, please, um, I would love to connect with you because we did, I didn't know anything, you know, and, and we, I had a broader dream of our, of my, our nonprofit. It was always about protecting encroachment of petrochemical and having alternatives besides petrochemical. And we thought heritage and tourism was the best way, except, you know, you had this plantation narrative. Um, but I, we've quickly become more centered around environmental justice and protection of land. Um, and so we had to learn, you know, on the fly and got connected to wonderful communities that were able to help us, you know, with lawsuits, with pushing back against permits. And we have not paid a dime for legal representation. And, and we have the Center for Constitutional Rights and again, Tulane Environmental Law Clinic. Um, and there's just wonderful, wonderful communities of, of supporters and foundations that that love us and want to see us happy and healthy and reach out and, and have given, given us the, the most wonderful notes and, you know, just most encouraging words and support. So um, I'm, in, I'm encouraged that things have actually, you know, there is a turning that's happening in the river parishes. I think that we are almost, it's going to, it's still hard. It's going to still be a hard road ahead of us. But I really think that the work of the various environmental justice communities through Ascension, St. James, St. John, and even, you know, even in St. Charles, that we are beginning to shift where people are considering, you know, that these heavy industry petrochemical jobs, they're really, they're starting to see, you know, the reality of what these jobs mm -hmm. uh, really, really mean for us. Um, that it comes at, I don't call it a living wage, that we have a dying wage. You know, there's a certain amount of money that we accept or we are forced to, or we, we feel we have to accept, we know we're going to die. Um, but, you know, like that's part of the wages. That's part of what you accept when you take these jobs. Felicia, you and I talked in the summer of 2020 um, lots of times. And I remember this, uh, I, I, there was a publication, there is a publication in Philadelphia that at that time was already asking for articles to be written about recovery from COVID. This is the summer of 2020. And I think when we talked about that first, we both were laughing in a sort of dark, the way you laugh in a pandemic, uh, that, you know, recovery. But we did write about it. And, um, and I want to just read one little bit from that. I really I learned a lot in writing about that with you. And we wrote here a just recovery. So you introduced me to the idea of a just recovery. Um, and we write, you write, a just recovery will not return communities to pre-disaster norms of economic precarity, violence, and victimhood, environmental and health disparities. But the work will not be easy. It requires an honest accounting for the impacts of the disaster, pre-existing conditions of inequality that produced the worst conditions of the pandemic, 
and creative policies and mutual aid assistance to see us through to a possibly better Philadelphia for all Philadelphians. That was published in October of 2020. There's some hopefulness in that. Um, and you talked about, you know, how you felt about that that summer looking back now. But I wonder how you're mobilizing that that hopefulness because there is a need for recovery. It's it's delayed a couple of years now, but um, those ideas are still true. Yes, yes. I definitely think that hope is one of the things that we have to hold on to. I think it becomes incredibly difficult to do the kind of work that we're doing if we don't believe in it and don't believe that we can change some aspect of it. Um, so I definitely still have hope for a just recovery, um, even in the midst of all of the craziness. But I mean, for me, a lot of my work now really centers around my research and then um, my kind of uh, artistic work. So um, research in the sense that uh, I've been focusing on what some scholars call this idea of carceral citizenship and looking particularly at Black women and understanding how the, the same kind of tropes, stereotypes, controlling images, how all of those play throughout their just like regular lives and what the impact of having a criminal record or being involved in the criminal justice system does for all of those things. And then putting on top of that a disaster, right? So understanding how do they navigate everyday life as Black women already in America? How do they navigate life with now this carceral citizenship? So being responsible in many ways for their own welfare while still being under social control and then also navigating that in the midst of a disaster. And I think that that's going to be really powerful work because, again, kind of thinking about this uh, canary in the coal mines are really understanding when you understand the folks that are really pushed to the outermost of the margins, you start to be, to, to be able to create more equitable policies, more equitable responses to what's going on, both from a disaster lens and also from a, a, a criminal legal lens. Um, so doing that work and then also looking at the intersection again of criminal justice and disasters, but even the intersection of criminal justice and environmental justice. So thinking about um, these ideas of carceral geography and where folks who are incarcerated, where they come from, where they will return, ways that um, the same kind of communities that they're incarcerated in are close by to these super fun sites, toxic waste sites. And then when they get back home, they're in these crowded and dense cities where they can't breathe and all of these kind of things. So really understanding ways that when we think about folks who are incarcerated, I think we kind of think of this point in time of, of the crime and then getting locked up, but ways that they are exposed to environmental justice really from birth and how that continues in their incarceration. Um, and then artistically, uh, my um, artistic collective behind the walls between the lines, just thinking about um, right now, it, we're in year eight. Um, and if you believe in the, the meaning of numbers, it's the year of beginnings, new beginnings. And so um, really thinking about ways that we can use that artistic platform to reimagine what, what does life look like in a just recovery? What does life look like in a world where people's needs are met and we're not responding to harm with the criminal legal system? And so just thinking about that and being able to bring folks together and start to like creatively understand how we respond um, is really where my focus is. So I'm super excited about those things. I think that it, it allows me to bring all of the things that we just talked about on this call together and really focus on, um, you know, what my lane essentially will look like and what my contribution will look like, you know, to the world. So I'm super, super excited about that and, and definitely still hopeful um, about what we can do because that's, that's what keeps me going. If I didn't believe it, then um, it would get even more exhausting than it already is. But, you know, when you're tired and you think about, I'm going to change somebody's life. This work is going to change somebody's life. Someone will not have to carry this burden one day, even if it's not a day that I'll see. Um, you know, you keep pushing. Felicia, you've got four channels working. If, if, you don't, <laughs> if you don't succeed with the research, you're coming with the teaching, and it, then you're coming with the activism, and then you've got the art project, just in case you weren't paying attention to those first three. You are a leader. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. And, and Joy and Monica as well. Um, and uh, we've got to wrap up, but this is just temporary wrap up. We'll, we'll keep talking and keep working together. And um, 
I just want to thank the three of you uh, for mentoring me, for teaching me, and having these conversations, these open conversations on COVID calls and the many other places that you have conversations and share your stories, which I know are exhausting to have to keep being asked, hey, can you explain the history of this crazy country to us, to me? As if I couldn't have gone out and figured it out for myself. <laughs> um, so the ask itself is greedy, frankly. Uh, and you've, you've responded to it with goodwill and with huge knowledge. And that means a lot to me. So I want to thank you for that. Uh, and um, I know we'll all keep working together. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. This has been a great conversation on COVID calls. And I want to thank my guests, Monica Sanders, Joy Banner, and Felicia Henry. And uh, I want to ask everybody just to uh, stick around. We've got another COVID calls episode in this special grouping of COVID calls, restoring memory the first two years of the pandemic. I'll be talking to Alex Goldstein, the creator of Faces of COVID, and Kristen Urquiza, the creator of Marked by COVID. And that's going to start here in just a couple of minutes. Thanks, everybody. Stay healthy and see you next time.